Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Well, we're in, uh, on Route 66. We're uh, somewhere outside of the Oklahoma City limits on our way to the next coast. And we're traveling quickly through the books of the Bible we have covered from Genesis all the way up to Isaiah. And then this morning, we're going to be in the major prophets. Tonight, we'll get halfway through the minor prophets. And then the next one will be the rest of the minor prophets. And then we're in the New Testament as we take a quick trip in surveying and overlooking uh, what God has said in his word and the consistency of the message of scripture. And so uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can look at the book of Isaiah. You see you've got a lot of notes in front of you. Uh, I figured either do that or I would preach for two and a half hours. And I thought you would love me more if I just gave you a lot of notes. So uh, you've got a lot there in front of you. We've got a lot that we're going to fill in and talk about today uh, in this journey through the scriptures. As I mentioned earlier, I shared in a revival forum with Richard Owen Roberts. And uh, Richard Owen Roberts is in his 70s. He's a revivalist. He has written numerous books on revival and on repentance and on the need for revival. And I was telling the staff earlier this morning that uh, it's been a long time since I sat by a wiry, frail old man who thundered out as if he had been having a direct communication with God like Richard Owen Roberts. It's been since I sat with Vance Havner that uh, I sat by a man like that who had such a passion for revival. And one of the things that Richard Owen Roberts said in that revival forum that we were participating in was, was that God has two kinds of judgments. There is a judgment that brings us to repentance. And then there is a judgment Because God knows we have so hardened our hearts that we will not repent, that he brings a judgment from which there is no opportunity for repentance. It will fulfill its course and do everything the judgment was intended to do. And he says that he believes America is in that second judgment that we are in a judgment of the wrath of God that is about to fall on this land from which we will not recover. And in saying that, he said to all of us, and most of the people in that room were pastors, he said, you need to quit preaching to goats because goats don't listen to the Lord. You need to start talking to the sheep and tell them if they don't do what they're supposed to do, that judgment is for sure going to come on this land. And we will be accountable for that judgment because we've not sought the Lord in a time when we still had a window of mercy before us. And when you look at the prophets, that is exactly what they did. They told of a coming judgment that the land would have to endure. They told of coming captivities. They called God's people back to him. And for the most part, 
their messages went unheeded. How sad it would be if our children and grandchildren end up living in a land that has lost the blessing and the protection of God and we are left to, the, to be the prey of others because we, on our watch, did not do what God told us to do. And we so embraced our materialism and our selfishness and our caring only for ourselves that we left for our children and grandchildren a wicked land in which to live. Let's remember the difference between the priest and the prophets. The priest represented the people to God. The prophets represented God to the people. The priests represented the people to God. The prophets represented God to the people. The prophets' ministry was twofold. It was foretelling, talking about the future, and foretelling what the people needed to do or God was going to act in certain ways. And so they were God's spokesmen. They were always warning of what would come if God's people did not fall in line with his law and with his word. And so there are 16 in total. They are known as the writing prophets that we look at. There were other prophets like Elijah and Elisha, but these are the writing prophets. And they take up one-third of the Bible. So if you are not familiar with the prophets, or if their words seem harsh to you, realize that God gave one-third of the scriptures to the prophets. And they have something to say to us. Uh, they attacked the religion with no power. They pointed to the law. They reminded people that Jehovah was the only true God. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that there are three elements to the message of the prophets, and this is a summary of why this is so important. First of all, there was a message to their own age. God spoke to them to speak to their own age, their own time, to their contemporaries. So they had a message to their own age. Secondly, they had a message of predicted future events. Most of them involving captivity and calamity or judgment, some of them speaking to the coming of the Messiah. And then thirdly, they had a living message to our age. The eternal principles of right and wrong that are given in God's word, they have a message to our age that we need to hear today. They give both the principles and the promises of God. Now listen, one of the things that's important for us to understand is we typically think of the promises of God as good things. Oh, the promises of God are wonderful. I'm standing on the promises of God. God has promised. He has promised that if a nation or his people turn away from him, he will judge. That's a promise. And he has kept it in every nation and in every age and at every time when God makes a promise he keeps it now here's the thing about a promise a promise is a commitment of yourself when you hear somebody make a promise hey I'll call you I'll get back to you I'll write you uh, I'll pray about that a lot of times we we say we promise we're going to do something and in reality we don't do it but a promise is a commitment of self 
It is saying that my integrity is on the line that I will do what I said I will do. Well, guess what? God's promises are based on the integrity of God himself. And he does not lie, and he does not waver, and he does not change his mind. So when God promises that if you do not change, I will judge, it is a promise for the purpose of letting us know that we've got an opportunity to make some differences in the way we live our lives. The promises of God are the commitment of himself based on his integrity. Faith has no value if it's not based in a promise. God promises to save. God promises that there's a heaven, but he also promises that there's a hell. God promises judgment, but he also promises mercy. You need to understand that God lives up to his word. So generally speaking, these four major prophets deal with the unveiling of the king. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel all speak of the coming Messiah. There are references throughout their books of the coming Messiah. So they, it's not in your notes. I'm throwing stuff in. Not everything's on paper. You've got to listen. <laughs> it's the unveiling of the king. The 12 minor prophets are the unveiling of the kingdom. And so they have a dual purpose in what they are revealing. So let's jump into Isaiah and the promise of Messiah. The name Isaiah means salvation of Jehovah. He is the greatest prophet of salvation in the Old Testament. He wrote during 8th century Judah. Uh, he is considered the, the gospel writer of the Old Testament or the fifth gospel, if you will, when you read Isaiah and see what he says about the coming Messiah. His purpose was twofold. It was to speak against idolatry and to prophesy a coming Messiah. So when you read Isaiah, he's dealing with idolatry, but he's also giving a promise of the coming of the Messiah. The key word in the book is salvation. All through this book, you see the word salvation. The key phrase is the Holy One of Israel. When Isaiah speaks, remember he had that great vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died. He, he is speaking of the Holy One of Israel. The key verses are chapter 1 and verse 18, chapter 7 and verse 14, chapters 9 and verses 6 and 7, and chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The key chapters, if you don't get all of these down, are chapters 1 and 6, 40, 49, 50, 52, 53, 55, and 65. If you can't get all of those, then get this part down right here. Isaiah deals with judgment and denunciation in the first 39 chapters. He deals with judgment and denunciation. He's denouncing the people for their wickedness and for their idolatry. And then grace and consolation in the rest of the book. Some people have tried to imply that there are two Isaiahs. When I went to seminary, there were, well, Isaiah didn't write it, two Isaiahs wrote it. Uh, it is a book with two messages, one author. Uh, Isaiah wrote this book and he has a purpose of dealing with idolatry, but then he changes his theme in the middle of the book and he begins to deal with God's grace. And you see there a comparison between the Bible and the book of Isaiah. It's a phenomenal comparison. Now, there are two comings of Christ in Isaiah. 
He is coming and he is coming again. He is coming as Savior. That's Isaiah 53. When you read the coming of Christ in Isaiah, there are both comings revealed. There's the coming of Christ as Savior in Isaiah 53 and in Isaiah 60, but there is a coming again in Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 60 through 66. You will discover in studying these major prophets that Christ is on every page. In fact, one of the great uh, preachers of another era said, every chapter of the Bible has Christ in it. If you didn't see him, read it again. Whatever chapter you're reading in the scriptures, whatever page you are on, Christ is hidden in that page somewhere. If you don't see him there, study it again and study it again until you see Christ in the scriptures in every chapter on every page. Let's look at it. Isaiah deals with his birth, chapter 7 and verse 14. He deals with his authority, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He deals with Christ's humility, chapter 11 and verse 1. He deals with his power, chapter 11 and verses 2 and 3. He talks about his suffering in chapter 53. So he's dealt with his birth, his authority, his humility, his power, his suffering. Then in chapter 53, he deals with him dying with the wicked. Dying with the wicked. Uh, we were at the, uh, a meeting last Sunday morning. And uh, I'm going to pause here for just a second. We were at a meeting uh, last Sunday morning with uh, uh, Pastor Ed Litton and with the uh, church family of First Baptist Northmobile and having a worship service with them as the volunteers for the pastor's conference. And Ed's pastor growing up was speaking. And he said when Ed surrendered to the ministry when he was 16 years old, he said he came to my office and, and he said, Pastor, he said, said I, I've got a sermon to preach. And he said, nobody's ever preached on this sermon before. He said, really? He said, what's the sermon? He said, he said, I found where Paul talked about his father. He said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, Paul talked about his father. He said, I'm preaching a sermon on Paul's father and that Paul's father was there at the crucifixion of Jesus. And Ed's pastor said, now, Ed, I don't know if I've ever read that. He said, Paul's father died at the cross with Jesus. And he said, Ed, where are you getting that? He said, Romans chapter 6, my old man was crucified with Christ. <laughs> Some of you will get that in a little bit. Isaiah 53, 9, Jesus died between two thieves between the, with the wicked. His burial with the rich, Isaiah 53 and verse 9. His resurrection, Isaiah 25 and verse 8. And his future reign, Isaiah 65, verse 17 and 66, verses 1 and 22. Isaiah 53 is the greatest messianic chapter in all of Scripture. And every prophecy was fulfilled out of Isaiah 53 in Christ Jesus. And it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. It validates everything that happened in the life of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry and shows that he was the coming Messiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Jer Jesus is the righteous branch. That's the key to Jeremiah, that Jesus Christ is the righteous branch 
of God. The key words, and there are many in Jeremiah. The key words in Jeremiah are iniquity, 53 times. Captivity, 51 times. Evil, 81 times. Backsliding, 13 times. Babylon, 164 times. And repent, 11 times. Iniquity, captivity, evil, backsliding, Babylon, and repent. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He prophesied a coming judgment, but he wept as he did it. He, he was given the choice of going to Babylon with some of those who were taken captive or staying in Judah with the poorest of the poor. He chose to stay with the poorest of the poor, and tradition says that Jeremiah was stoned to death by his own people because they rejected his prophecy. Now, there's some similarities here between Jesus and Jeremiah, and you're about to see them. First of all, Jeremiah never married. He never married. He was single all his life. He was rejected by his own people. Now, watch as you go through this list of the similarities and how Jeremiah is a picture of the righteous branch of God. He is a picture and he's a, an image, a type of Jesus Christ. He was rejected by his own. He was opposed by the religious establishment. The religious people rejected his message. They opposed what he had to say. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Shortest verse in the Bible is that Jesus wept as he stood and looked at, at Jerusalem. Jesus wept and Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem. He was arrested under false pretenses and persecuted as Jesus was. And he talked about a new covenant beginning in Jeremiah 33, which was Jesus. And when you study this book, you see Christ pictured all through this book. Let me just give you some references because you'll see these especially in the Gospel of John. First of all, he talked and pictured Jesus as the fountain of living water. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. That's what Jesus said he was. He was the living water. Not only was Jesus the fountain of living water, Jeremiah prophesying that hundreds of years before Christ came, but he was the great physician. Chapter 8 and verse 22. Not only was he the fountain of living water and the great physician, but he was the good shepherd. Chapter 31 and chapter 23. And not only was he the good shepherd, he was the righteous branch. Chapter 23 and verse 5. You remember one of the names for Messiah is son of David, and he was David the king. Chapter 30 and verse 9. He was called the redeemer in chapter 50 and verse 34. And our righteousness in chapter 23 and verse 6. Now somewhere make some room in your notes. And I want to summarize in, in four words or phrases that begin with the letter C. How you can summarize the book of Jeremiah. First of all, the word chosen. God was writing to God's chosen people. They were chosen and so when you read what Jeremiah is doing, he's, he's talking to the chosen. But not only that, they were captured. Jeremiah warned of a coming captivity. 
And so God's chosen people, because they rebelled against God and did not do what he told them to do, they were taken into captivity. They were captured. They were carried away because of their sin and disobedience. And then he spoke of a coming Messiah, which begins in chapter 31, where he talks about a new covenant that God will gather his people into their land and a good shepherd will appear. Jeremiah 33. And so in those four phrases, you summarize the message of the book of Jeremiah. Chosen, captured, carried away, but always a promise of hope. And the promise of hope for Jeremiah was that Messiah was going to come. Now we look at the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God. Jesus is the Son of Man, which was, by the way, the favorite name that Jesus had for himself was the Son of Man. The book opens with a vision of God and it closes with the temple of God. Ezekiel's name means God will strengthen. Someone has said, and I think this is a great summary, Ezekiel was the prophet of the Spirit, Isaiah was the prophet of the Son, and Jeremiah was the prophet of the Father. Those three picturing God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. The key phrases in Jeremiah are, they shall know that I am God, 70 times. They shall know that I am God. Son of man, which is why this is such a key word in this passage, 91 times he refers to the Son of man. The glory of the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me is used 49 times. Now there's some keys to understanding Ezekiel. And Ezekiel can be a frightening book to study. But as you'll see in your notes, and we're not going to take time to cover it, there's a great tie-in between Ezekiel and Revelation. You cannot understand the book of Ezekiel without having some knowledge of the book of Daniel and the book of, uh, understand Revelation without understanding Daniel and Ezekiel. There's so much tie-in in prophecy between these books to, to interpret Revelation without knowing Daniel and Ezekiel would make you dangerous and on the edge of error in your interpretation of prophetic events and times. And, and so he, he writes and he tells us three things. First of all, the seriousness of sin. Ezekiel pulls no punches. He talks about the seriousness of sin. Secondly, he talks about the severity of God's judgment. That when God sends a final judgment because man will not repent and man will not change, it will be a severe judgment. It will not be a hand slap. There's a severity of judgment. And then there's the promise of God's blessing. The promise of God's blessing. Ezekiel talks about the glory of the Lord. He witnessed this is the book where he witnessed the Shekinah glory of God leaving the temple. But he had a vision of that glory returning to the land one day. And so his message is a message of the glory of God. In fact, that phrase, the glory of God, is used 12 times in the first 11 chapters. And then it disappears. And he quits talking about the glory of God because God's glory was absent because of sin. God departed. He removed his blessings from his people because they would not repent and confess their sin. And so in Ezekiel 8, you see this picture unfolding in Ezekiel chapter 8. 
Uh, idolatry is in the outer courts. And here's what's happening in the outer courts. The people have their back to the sanctuary, to God's house, and they are looking at the sun, S-U-N. And so they've turned their back uh, on God and they're facing east. And then there's idolatry in the inner sanctuary. They're going even deeper into their idolatry. And then the glory of God departs to the threshold and then it rests on the cherubim. And then in Ezekiel chapter 10, he sees it goes to the mount. And then the glory of God just leaves the city of Jerusalem. God departing. Why did God depart? God's glory departed because there was a captivity to sin, which led to a physical captivity. The glory of God was symbolized by the, by the manifestation of a light that removed itself. And Ezekiel saw this light moving. And he was called to preach it. This is a verse that the Lord showed me early on in my ministry when I realized that one of the things that, that God had called me to do, even in youth ministry, was to speak with a prophetic edge to my ministry. As I was studying the scriptures one day, God took me to Ezekiel 33. And I'm, uh, I want to ask you to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 3, I'm sorry. Ezekiel 3 and verse 11. And I believe this verse describes what's happening in churches all across America today. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. You will hear me say often, you are not responsible just for what you hear, but for what you would have heard if you had been listening. They would not listen to Ezekiel, but when judgment came, they were reminded of his words that judgment was coming. And the role of any preacher with any backbone today is you say what God says, whether people listen or not. It's not my responsibility to make the message acceptable. It's my responsibility to deliver what God has delivered to me from his word. That's the responsibility of a preacher. And any preacher that waters that down, as I said in the revival forum this week, because the fear of man is a snare, any preacher that waters that down not only brings judgment on himself, but he brings further judgment on his people because if his people had heard that judgment was coming, they might have repented. And so the responsibility of the man of God with the word of God is to reclaim what God has said and leave the results to God. Amen. And he said, you go and you tell them, even if they don't listen. And guess what? They didn't listen. Most of the people didn't listen to the prophets. And can I tell you that in America, most American Christians are not listening to the prophets today. And I'm not talking about prophets of good news and happy and joy, joy. I'm talking about people that are saying that this country is headed toward a crisis from which she will not recover and we will be knocked to our knees. 
And so when it happens, if we don't repent, just remember, on June 28th of 2009, somebody told you it was coming. And when you try to tell your kids why you didn't do anything, why you didn't get right with God, why you didn't get saved, why you didn't give your heart to Jesus, why you didn't give everything that God told you to give and do everything that God told you to do. Just remember, on a day in June, you were in a room or watching by television and you heard that a judgment was coming and you didn't do anything. If you don't, the blood's off my hands. Because I've just told you what God told me 30 years ago. You tell people what I say, whether they listen or not. We need to be listening because I believe God is not going to shout anymore. I believe we're going to have to get quiet enough to listen to him so that we hear the still small voice because his distance is getting further and further from us until one day we'll not hear him speak anymore because we've rejected what he had to say to us. Ezekiel spoke in visions, chapter 8. He spoke in parables, chapter 17. He spoke in poems, chapter 19. In Proverbs, chapters 12 and 18. And in prophecies, chapter 6 and especially chapters 40 through 48. Now we come to Daniel. Daniel's whose name means God is judge or God is my judge. He was in captivity, like Ezekiel in Babylon is probably of royal lineage. But he was prominent in numerous kingdoms, both Babylonian and Persian. The key words in Daniel are king, 183 times, kingdom, 55 times, and his own name, Daniel, 74 times. Daniel is a man with a clean heart and a clean mind and a clean body. Three times in the book of Daniel, it says he was greatly loved by God. Three times. Greatly loved by God. Three things about him. First of all, he was a man of purpose. You don't have to write down the whole sentence. You can just get the, the P word. He was a man of purpose. Chapter 1 and verse 8. He was a man of prayer. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 3. And chapter 17 and verse 10. And he was a man of prophecy. Now here's what's remarkable about, remarkable about Daniel. And you will run into people and say, I just don't believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. It's just full of a bunch of stories. and It's, it's, it's not got anything to do. and it, you know, it, it, It's not relevant today and everything. Let me tell you, Daniel prophesied the fall of the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman Empire in his book. Now at the time that Daniel gave those prophecies, the Greek Empire nor the Roman Empire were even in existence they were second-rate parts of the world. And he prophesied the fall of four kingdoms. By the way, the central truth there is that any nation that rises itself above God and refuses the laws of God and the will of God will ultimately fall to judgment. The nation that forsakes the laws of God and does what's right in its own eyes 
will ultimately fall to judgment. And Daniel prophesied the fall of all four of these kingdoms hundreds of years before they happened. I mean, he's prophesying hundreds of years before Christ, the Roman Empire would not fall into late 300s, 400 uh, AD, hundreds of years. They're not even a Roman Empire. There's not even a dot on the map that would identify them as that kind of empire. And he says, they're going to fall. And they did. So when you read the prophets, know that everything they said was true. And those principles are for their age and for our age. The second chapter of Daniel has been known as the ABCs of prophecy because Daniel chapter 2 is really a concise picture of what's to come. Now, if you are a teenager or a young adult, or if you have teenagers or children, let me give you a quick Bible study here of how to pour in some truths from the book of Daniel because I believe Daniel is one of the greatest books in Scripture written for children and teenagers and young, young adults. This is a phenomenal book because of what we learn about Daniel and the kind of man that he was. First of all, Daniel lived the surrendered life. He lived the surrendered life. If you want to teach your children, if you want to teach your young people, if you want to live the kind of life that stands above the crowd, then live the surrendered life. Daniel is a picture of that. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. He was a light in a dark world. That's chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. A light in a dark world. He had triumph in the midst of trials. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 25. In other words, he had integrity. He didn't compromise when given the opportunity to compromise. There were, he was rewarded for his faithfulness. Chapter 5 and verse 17. He was confident in praying. Chapter 6. He had confession of sin in chapter 9. And he understood that witnessing is essential. Chapter 12. Ezekiel, who was a peer of Daniel, listed him with Noah and Job as the only three that would withstand a judgment. So if you want to raise up a generation of your children and your grandchildren, or if you want to be in a generation that can stand up to a coming judgment, then study these characteristics in the life of Daniel. Because when Ezekiel looked at Daniel's life, a fellow prophet, a peer, when he looked at his life, he said, there's a man... Only Noah, Job, and Daniel. There's a man when all the world comes apart. There's a man who will stand up in the midst of it and will not only survive, but will overcome in the midst of that kind of judgment. Well, let me wrap this up with some phrases uh, from the end, just kind of summarizing the first six chapters of the book. Daniel chapter 1 tells us that God keeps. God kept Daniel safe in the lion's den. He kept his three friends safe in the fiery furnace. God keeps. God is sovereign. God is in control. So God keeps watch over us. Daniel chapter 2, God reveals. He understood the dreams of the king and he interpreted them. God reveals to the man who walks with him that which is his will and his way. 
God delivers Daniel chapter 3. That's the three friends from the fiery furnace who said, our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve God. Daniel chapter 4, God is king. God struck down Nebuchadnezzar for boasting of his power. We have politicians across our land today, from local government to national government, who boast and who strut and who walk with great pride in their flesh. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was struck down, God deals with those who boast and think they are bigger than God. These are sobering times in which we live. These are dangerous times. And God will keep us, but it doesn't mean that we will be isolated from the judgment that is to come. God judges, Daniel 5. There's handwriting on the wall. And God is all-powerful, Daniel 6. He delivers Daniel in the lion's den. I want to ask you a question. This has not been a happy, happy, joy, joy message. <laughs> the prophets are just not that. I mean, I'm sorry. I'd like to lighten it up, you know, but, you know, these guys didn't stop and tell a few jokes because they knew how serious the hour was. I want to ask you, in light of the fact that every indicator in our society, in our culture, in the world, and most of all in Scripture, every indicator is that we are headed for judgment. And I'm talking about judgment that will affect the lives of the babies in our preschool area, the children in Kids Rock, the young people sitting here. Our lives are not going to be the same. Whatever we enjoy right now may be gone before we know it. Our lives hang in the balance. In light of that, let's just say that 50% of what I've said might happen. Is it worth it to you to adjust your life today in light of the fact that the hand of God is about to weigh heavy on this land? Is it worth it to you to change the way that you emphasize things with your children and with your grandchildren about what's really important in light of a coming judgment? Are you willing to make any changes today? Are you willing to ask God? Are you willing to pray? We're to pray for those in authority. And I, I am praying for our president. I'm praying for people I totally disagree with. I'm praying for Nancy Pelosi, and that's hard. Amen. I'm praying for people that, that I personally probably don't like. But God has not given me a choice about praying for those in authority. Because he says, you pray for those in authority that you may live in peace. Amen. Whether you like them or not, whether you voted for them or not, you and I are required by Scripture to pray for those in authority that we might live in peace. And right now, the path we're on and the path we've been on 
for decades has not been a path toward peace. It's been a path toward chaos and the destruction of the home. Mike Huckabee said this week that all government begins with the family, that the first leader of government is the father. And if the father doesn't lead his family well, then those that that family influences will not do well. And that the government will never be any stronger, a nation will never be any stronger than the government within the home. And he's right. And so I want to ask you, if you're not saved today, are you ready for a coming judgment? Are you willing to admit that you need a Savior to get you through what's coming? Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, it may be 30 years from now. We don't know when it'll be because God doesn't put it on the newspaper, prepare this time, this day is when it's going to hit because we'd all wait to the last minute to do something about it. It could come today. It could come tomorrow. Nobody, nobody saw 9-11 coming. And how quickly we have forgotten how a few lunatics can change the course of our lives. We live in dangerous times. And the church must repent. And the church must listen to the Lord. And the church must adjust lest we give our children and our grandchildren nothing but captivity and bondage and hopelessness. There is still hope because God hasn't judged yet. And as long as there's hope, there's time to repent and there's time to change and there's time to pray. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.